As a Christian congregation, we tend to speak and sing and say some pretty daring things from time to time. So, for example, from time to time, we will sing a song entitled, All I Have is Christ. And in that song, we sing these words, O Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Think about that for a minute. Think about those words, in any way you choose. Are we serious when we sing that? We should be, right? We should be willing servants of the living God. And here's, here's the somewhat unsettling thing. God really does use the lives of His people to communicate His message of grace to the world. And He does it every time in the way that He chooses. Just think about the prophet Hosea, whose book we're going to begin studying this morning. As you you may know, the book of Hosea is about a faithful God who pursues and redeems an unfaithful people. This message is communicated not only through an 8th century prophet's preaching, but also through his life. Uh, We could say that the Lord used Hosea's life in the way that he chose. Hosea himself, he becomes a living parable, a living example of how our faithful God pursues and redeems his unfaithful people. Hosea is commanded by God to marry a woman who will wander away into the arms of other lovers, just as Israel wandered away from God. Hosea is commanded to give his children names which disclose Israel's coming punishment. And Hosea proclaims a message of life to people who are deserving of death. But he must do it as one who is willing for the Lord to use his life in any way that God chooses. As we study the book of Hosea, I pray that the Lord would be pleased to make us servants who are willing to be used in any way that the Lord might choose. I pray that we would see that we've been wayward, that we've been bought, and that we've been brought back by a love that will not let us go. And that this would encourage us to proclaim the love of our faithful God revealed in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn them to Hosea chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 751 of the Bibles provided. The passage that we're looking at together this morning, Hosea chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 1, there's a bit of an unfortunate chapter break. That's what we're looking at this morning, Hosea 1 1 to Hosea chapter 2 verse 1. It, It falls naturally into three distinct sections. In verse 1, the life and times of Hosea are introduced. Then in verses 2 through 9, we meet Hosea's wife and children. And through them, we're invited to investigate Israel's wayward heart. And then the message, and then from Hosea chapter 1 verse 10 through chapter 2 verse 1, we hear a word of hope to a people that should be hopeless. The message of Hosea in this section, Hosea chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2 verse 1, is that we've been unfaithful. Though we've been unfaithful, though we've broken our promises, our God remains faithful. He keeps His promises. He shows His mercy. So, for those of you who are taking notes this morning, here's the outline for the rest of our study. Three points. One, Hosea's call and context. Number two, Hosea's covenant and children. And number three, Hosea's comfort and consolation. I believe there's an insert provided there in the bulletin for you. Let's turn and consider our first point, Hosea's call and context. And here we're going to unpack the life and times of Hosea. Follow along as I read Hosea chapter 1, just verse 1 for now. The word of the Lord Yahweh that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Well, here we're introduced to the life and times of Hosea. Perhaps the most important words in this verse are these, the word of the Lord that came. Throughout the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, these words often signify Yahweh's call to a prophet, His commissioning him to speak His message. But these words, they also signal something to us as well, something else, something about Hosea's message. The message that we will hear in this book is none other than the message of God to his people. The word of the Lord is going forth through Hosea, and it will no doubt 
accomplish its purpose. As you may have guessed, the book's name is derived from its, its author, the prophet who received the word of the Lord. Hosea's, ne- Hosea's name means Yahweh has rescued or delivered. Uh, you can put it like this, Yahweh saves. This book is what we know as of one of the twelve, or one of the minor prophets. Um, and now, by minor, we don't mean that it's less important. We simply mean that it's a, a shorter work than, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah. Isaiah being 66 chapters, Hosea much shorter than that. We know actually very little about Hosea himself. In fact, in the first three chapters, we're going to kind of reach nearly all that we know about Hosea, about this man. We know that he was called by God to speak for God as a prophet. We see that there in the opening words. But what does it actually mean for Hosea to be a prophet, someone to be a prophet in ancient Israel? Well, in the scriptures, prophets are the mouthpieces of God. Uh, And not only were they called to relay what God has revealed, but they're also called to be a covenant advocate. They were to advocate for the people of God to return to covenant faithfulness. Often they would preach a confrontational message and call God's people to repentance. And they would warn God's people that if they did not turn, they did not repent and return to covenant faithfulness, then they would face the consequences of the covenant. Though confrontational, Hosea and other prophets would also preach a word of consolation. We'll hear some of the the beautiful words of comfort in this book. Even so, it was often hard for Hosea's audience to hear his word of comfort when his word of confrontation was so, well, confrontational. In fact, later on in the book, Hosea is going to reveal to us that he's been called a a madman and a fool by those who are hearing his message. Being a prophet was hard work in ancient Israel. Hosea, he was called by God. And as verse 1 says, you see there, he's the son of Beeri. Now, we really don't know anything about Beeri uh, or Hosea's family background any further. We don't know, uh, we do know, though, that he was called to marry Gomer, a woman who would be unfaithful to him. We'll meet Gomer and her three children a little later. We'll meet them shortly. But looking at verse 1, we see that there are a bunch of kings. Uh, The material for this book, no doubt, emerged during the course of Hosea's ministry in the latter half of the 8th century. That's when these these guys reigned for the most part. What likely happened is that Hosea delivered the, the messages we find in this book kind of over a period of time. And they were likely collected into one cohesive work. If you look at verse 1 of the book, you'll get this sense for the time frame in the names of these kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. They were kings of Judah. And we see in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Notice here, we've got different kings and different kingdoms. We've got four kings from Judah and one king from Israel. And this should make us pause and remember where we are in redemptive history. Uh, you can find, again, uh, in, in your bullets, kind of an outline of redemptive history. But um, you're not always going to have that outline with you as you go through life. So you, I would encourage you, Christian, you should find a way to remember the basic structure of redemptive history. Um, a way that I've done that is just by thinking about the major events in the Bible's history. And because my brain kind of runs down the track of alliteration, I use the letter E. Uh, the history of the Bible can be easily summarized, right, as Eden, creation of the world, Eden, to the Exodus. There's a time period in there. From the Exodus um, to the entrance into the Promised Land. We're looking at the wilderness there. From the entrance to the Promised Land to the exile. So you've got the kings and the kingdoms and the fall and decline. So entrance into the promised land to the exile. You've got the exile to Jesus' entrance when he comes in in the New Testament. You've got Jesus' entrance, his incarnation, his life and ministry and death and resurrection to his exit, his ascension. And then you've got um, Jesus' exit to the end or the new heavens and the new earth. So that's an easy way that I at least try to remember where we are in redemptive history. And here in Hosea, we're in that time period between the entrance into the promised land, the people of Israel have come into the promised land, have established the kingdom, and just before their exit. That's where we all are. In this period, the kingdom's been established. Saul and David and Solomon have reigned over the united monarchy, and then the kingdom divided. And now there is a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. Hosea, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II, or as our text calls him, Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Jeroboam II, he reigned for nearly 40 years. This was a period of peace and prosperity 
and power for the northern kingdom of Israel. But it was not without its problems, much like uh, a day of our own. The northern kingdom, uh, under the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was one of decadence and depravity. The people under his rule willingly gave themselves to the fertility gods of the surrounding nations. Is not our world obsessed with the same? Indeed, it was a, a period of decadence and depravity. For after all, what does peace and prosperity and power tend to bring or inculcate among a people? Does it not inculcate a kind of complacency, uh, giving ourselves to comfort, materialism, greed, selfishness, and pleasure? Are we not in danger of the same? Does not Hosea actually have something to say to us? Hosea, he warned the northern kingdom of their coming decline and devastation. In effect, the people had departed from God, and so they would face discipline for that departure. Hosea promised that the Assyrians would come and conquer. The people of Israel would soon become obsessed with a situation marked by rising volatility. I mean, looking around, there's this rising nation. What shall I do? Who will I look to? The people of Israel, they wanted to find a way to establish their safety and security. And they looked to everyone and everything but the one who could actually save them. The one who could actually make them secure. Safety and security for Israel could only be found in their covenant husband, Yahweh himself. And this is no less true of the people of God today. Who are we looking to for safety and security day by day? Now, Hosea, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And yet we have four kings from the southern kingdom of Judah mentioned there in verse 1. They're mentioned in part, yes, to identify the period of Hosea's ministry. The very mention of Hezekiah indicates that part of Hosea's ministry occurred just before the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Still, these kings of Judah are listed, I think, for another reason. They're also listed because these kings and the people of the southern kingdom should have heard Hosea's message to the northern kingdom of Israel as a salutary warning to them. Hosea's message to the northern kingdom should have been a warning to them. In other words, they should have been eavesdropping in on Hosea's plea for the northern kingdom to repent and to return to covenant faithfulness. And so they, the south, they should have done the same. The southern kingdom should also repent and return to Yahweh. And I think this indicates for us something of how this book is to be read by us today. This tells us something, something important. There is hope in Hosea. There's, there's glorious hope. We want to revel in that and receive that. Hope of a loving God who pursues his wayward wife. And yet, if we're to read this book honestly, we will have to take a deep and prolonged look in the mirror. Take a deep and prolonged look at our own waywardness. We have to watch the way in which Israel goes astray. And we have to ask ourselves, have we gone astray in those ways too? We have to examine the unfaithfuls, not simply of the church writ large, or the Western church, or the American church, or the church in our area, but our church, this church, and even our very own hearts. How have we forsaken the, the Lord? How have we worshipped the world's loves or served the world's leaders? If we read this book with humility, we will have to take a long look in the mirror. For these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as the ancient people of God did. May our God give us ears to hear this message from Hosea because it's nothing less than the word of God for his people today. Well, having considered Hosea's call and his context, especially his historical context, let's turn and consider our second point, Hosea's covenant, which is his marriage, and his children. Here we're going to meet Hosea's wife, the woman he enters into a covenant with, and his children. Follow along as I read Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 to 9. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord Yahweh said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went... And took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
of the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Not My People, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Well, in these verses, we meet Hosea. We, we see his faithfulness. We meet his family. We meet more than that, too. Hosea's situation, as has already been mentioned, serves as an analogy of God's relationship to his people Israel. Hosea's relationship with Gomer and her children tell us something about God's relationship with Israel. Once again, we're told that the Lord spoke through Hosea. Consider the patience of God. Consider His pursuit. In this era, when people are giving themselves to the gods of the surrounding nations, God is still speaking to them, pursuing them, being patient with them. They are wayward and wicked, and yet He speaks. Often when, when relationships break down, we, we back away. We'd rather be done. We'd rather give up. We'd rather quit. We'd rather close down the conversation. But the Lord gently and graciously pursues. He keeps speaking, and we should too. In verse 2, we hear this shocking command from the Lord, don't we? Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, when writers want to underscore a point, they often repeat a word or an idea. And here's what the book of Hosea is going to be about. Whoredom. Adultery, unfaithfulness. Verse 2 is, is painful to read. And I suspect that even now, perhaps some parents wish they had covered the ears of their children. But parents, if I may, I want to encourage you to read the Bible to your children. All parts of it. Even the uncomfortable ones. And explain these words and concepts to your children. We cannot let the world teach and train our children in these things. This is what we must do. And if I can be honest with you, you need to talk about these things sooner rather than later with your children. Open the Bible, read it with your children, and you'll be forced to explain these concepts to them. So for example, if you were to pick up and take up the New Testament reading challenge, you were to read it with your children, you would have to explain to them what it means that there was a woman caught in adultery. That's going to happen in the course of the New Testament. You'll, you'll have to explain to your kids that sexual intimacy is intended for marriage. You'll, you'll have to explain that sex is a gift given by God for spouses to love and serve and please one another. And from it, sometimes the Lord is pleased to bring children from that physical union. You'll have to explain that adultery or whoring is when a husband or a wife breaks God's law, the seventh commandment, and gives their body to someone who is not their spouse. You'll have an opportunity to explain that we see Gomer doing this. That that's what Gomer does. That Gomer gives herself here to adultery. And that what she does is wrong. And that this, this will actually be a larger, more important point for our own lives right here and right now. This is what Israel did to God. They committed spiritual adultery. And this is what we do, James says, when we sin against God. We commit spiritual adultery too. And this is why we need the Lord Jesus. And in your, you're into a conversation about the gospel with your children. This is why we need to read the Bible with our children and explain it to them. The book of Hosea, it's going to be about Israel's spiritual adultery, her whoring and her covenantal unfaithfulness to the Lord. God says himself there in verse 2, do you see it? For the land commits great, it's not a small thing, great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This book is going to be about Israel giving herself away to other lovers. Looking to others for safety and security and satisfaction. Instead of cleaving to the Lord, holding fast to the Lord, Israel had forsaken the Lord. And the analogy of marriage is so appropriate 
Because at Mount Sinai, when those Ten Commandments were given, Yahweh entered into a covenant with the people of Israel. The, the prophets almost constantly identify the Lord's relationship with Israel as a marriage covenant. We catch glimpses of Israel's marriage covenant with Yahweh in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and of course here in Hosea. And as I said, at Mount Sinai, Yahweh entered into a covenant with Israel. And there Israel made promises to be faithful to God. At the marriage altar at Sinai, Israel promised to forsake all others and to keep only unto Yahweh. She promised not to have any other husband but Him, the first commandment. She promised not to put any other loves before Him. She promised not to make images because He was jealous for her love and affection, the second commandment. She promised to take His name, to keep it holy, and to tell all the world that she was His bride, the third commandment. She promised to set aside a whole day of devotion to Him and communion with Him, to deepen her love for Him and to bask in His love for her, the fourth commandment. Hosea is to marry a woman who will turn out to be wayward, a wayward wife, because Yahweh has married Israel and she has turned out to be unfaithful to Him. For her unfaithfulness, Israel will be punished. Now the, the New Testament, no less than the Old, uses the marriage covenant as an analogy for God's relationship with His people. In the New Testament, we're told that the church is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must be careful not to forsake our covenant with our bridegroom and Savior, lest we risk discipline too. We too must be on guard against seeking the protection of worldly political power. Israel sought the protection of Assyria, of Egypt, and of Babylon. We must not do the same. We too must be on guard against wrongly seeking the comfort, the decadence, and the pleasure of our consumer culture. Israel sought such things from the Baals and the Asherah poles, and we must not do the same. Can we really think that we will escape the discipline of the Lord if we give our love to others? And let us not pass over an obvious application too quickly. To those who are married, you should be faithful to your spouse. Let us learn the lessons of Israel's adultery. It didn't happen suddenly, but slowly. So watch your heart. If you find your love leaking away from your spouse, then purposefully draw near to them. Just as the Lord gave Israel one day in seven, and the church one day in seven to renew and refresh their love for God, so husbands and wives need to regularly devote time, sometimes whole days, to the cultivation of their love for one another. Be warned by what we read here in Hosea. Nothing but devastation follows in the wake of unfaithfulness. Be faithful. Verse 3, I think, is absolutely incredible. Yahweh has just told Hosea what to do. And what does Hosea do? Look, look at verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dublin. Now, I don't know about you, but... Wouldn't you think that Hosea might protest just a little bit? I mean, isn't this the right time to tell the Lord, I'm pretty sure I've got the gift of singleness. You know, marriage is, is really not for me, Lord. But that's not what he does, is it? Immediately, almost it seems. Immediately, he obeys. And I find his faith-filled obedience challenging. Obeying the commands of God will bring Hosea hurt. He will be loved and left. He knows this, and still he obeys. Hosea obeys God, for he knows that though this marriage may tear him into pieces, God will heal him. Though he might be struck down, the Lord God will bind him up. That's what he'll say in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, what keeps us from obeying the commands of our God? Are, are we sometimes hesitant to obey because we fear the hurt that might come to us? Are we ever hesitant to obey because we fear what others might think of us? Are we ever hesitant to obey, to join in the obedience, uh, uh, the clunky obedience sometimes of our brothers and sisters in Christ because we're afraid what the world will think of us? Think we're fools, perhaps. And the answer, if we're honest with ourselves, must be yes sometimes. Sometimes we feel that way. And that may be showing that our love is in danger of leaking away from the Lord and running the comfort of the flesh or the love of the world. 
Strange as it may seem, obedience like Hosea's helps to fortify our love for God. Brothers and sisters, we can obey the commands of our God knowing that even though pain might come to us, though loss of prosperity might come to us, though loss of esteem in the eyes of the world might come to us, and even though death might come to us, our God has promised that our faith-filled obedience will not be in vain. What has our Savior promised? He has promised us this, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Your death will not be in vain. Loss of wealth on earth will be surpassed by the riches of heaven. We consider reproach for Christ greater as greater wealth than anything the world can offer. God uses our obedience to bring us into deeper conformity and communion with Christ. We can obey God through present pain because we know that earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Let us learn from the faith-filled obedience of Hosea and let us go and do likewise. Hosea, he marries Gomer, the daughter of Deblame. Though it's not decisive for properly understanding this book, the book of Hosea, I doubt that Gomer was a prostitute previous to her marriage covenant with Hosea. It's unlikely that a prostitute would, uh, have, would be known by her family lineage or even that her family lineage would be preserved. Whatever the case may be, we learn that Gomer conceived and she bore Hosea a son. And as we begin to unpack the names of these children, let me just offer a word of counsel to couples who are expecting, even in the next few weeks, children. Choose names from the Bible if you like, but don't choose these ones, okay? Well, the first son of Gomer is to be named Jezreel. Jezreel means to scatter or to sow, but the Lord has called Hosea and Gomer to name their child Jezreel because he plans to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Now, if you look back up to verse 1 of the chapter, you'll see Jeroboam there. He was probably the last king in the house of Jezreel. The story of Jehu, it's found, it's a, it's a wonderful story. It's a, a fast-paced story. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. In 2 Kings, we learn that the Lord had actually commissioned Jehu to punish the house of, of Ahab and wicked queen Jezebel. Um, he drove his chariot like a madman and executed God's vengeance, and he went too far. He filled the streets of Jezreel with blood and gave an inauguration speech to his rule with 70 heads piled up beside him. Imagine if that visual were present in the convention speeches of the last two weeks. It would be awful. But the purpose of naming this child is not simply to announce the punishment on the house of Jehu. Right? The end of verse 4 tells us that Yahweh will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom had scattered and sown syncretistic worship across Israel, throughout the land. And now Yahweh announces the punishment. At, the nations, at, 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 at Babel, the nations were scattered in punishment. And so Israel would be scattered in punishment like the nations. Right? If, you, if you live and you act like the nations, you're going to be treated like the nations. God's people were to be distinct. We ought to aim to be distinct as a church from the world. We can't blend in with the nations. We actually have to stand out. And in verse 5, we learn that Israel's bow will be broken. The day of Israel's might and power will come to an end. And this is no arbitrary punishment from the Lord. The truth is, is that the northern kingdom of Israel had placed their hope in military power and might. Military might and power were idols of Israel's heart. And it's just like the Lord to crush and remove idols. The Lord removes idols in our hearts so that we stop looking to them and we return to looking to Him. This makes me wonder, what idols is our Lord crushing now through this pestilence? And period of time. Is he in the process of crushing the idol of the right of the free exercise of religion? Is he challenging us to look to him for protection instead of a right prescribed in the Constitution? Is he in the process of crushing or challenging the idol of safety? Is he asking us to consider that our lives from the moment of our births have been in his 
hands. Is he asking us to consider that he made us and that he cares for us so we can trust him and be obedient? In view of the sovereignty of God, one uh, former general is reported to have said, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. Do we really believe that our lives are in the hands of our sovereign God? Do we really believe that the lives of our families, our friends, our neighbors are in the hands of our sovereign God? Our Lord, He's always in the business of crushing idols in our lives. What, what idol do you think He might be desiring to crush in your life right now? And consider that that might be a mercy to you. It might be a mercy to me to crush idols in our lives. At every step, the Lord's punishment, it fits the crime. And this is no less true with the remaining children. Gomer conceives and bears children who will be named Lo-Ruchama and Lo-Ami, or No Mercy and Not My People. These names express the painful nature of the Lord's relationship with His people. For years and years, the Lord had shown mercy to the people of Israel. He had shown tender compassion. That's what the uh, word is getting at. Tender compassion and forbearing with the sins of Israel. In the scriptures, the merciful compassion of the Lord carries with it connotations of flowing abundantly within the heart of the Lord. Think about those times when you see a child or a friend or a loved one genuinely injured. Your body sometimes has this natural convulsion in it. A momentary kind of sympathetic wincing in pain. There have been many times I've walked into a hospital room with members of our congregation. They got wires coming in and going out. And my body winces in pain because I'm not indifferent to them. I love you and I care for you. And that's what's happening with the merciful heart of our God. It goes out to His people. He loves them. He's been merciful to them. But the people of Israel seem not to have appreciated His mercy, but abused it. This child, Lubuchama, or no mercy, is a living testimony to the people of Israel that the time will soon come when the Lord will withdraw His mercy. We were sitting at the dinner table last night. One of my kids was reading this and they raised their hand and said, wait a minute, so this child, when somebody calls out their name, they're going to be saying, no mercy, no mercy? That's exactly right. Remember those stones of remembrance in ancient Israel? They'd be set up to remember a vent or uh, God's kindness to the people of Israel. Well, here is a living child running around these villages and towns and their name being called. And Israel is here being warned Punishment will come to you. God will withdraw His mercy if you do not repent. And Israel did not repent. They should hear the warning. And yet, yet, this is only what Israel brought upon herself. For she agreed to the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And verse 7, it actually teases out what, what would it mean for God to not show mercy? Well, verse 7, it teases out some of the implications by a kind of a, a mirror image, right? God's going to be merciful to Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, but He will not be merciful to Israel, where He will allow the northern kingdom of Israel to be run over by the Assyrians. He will not allow the people of Judah to be punished just yet. God will preserve Judah in His mercy, but because He will show no mercy to the northern kingdom of Israel, He will not preserve them. Judah, the southern kingdom, right? Listening in on what Hosea is saying to the northern kingdom, they ought to remember that we're not to trust in horses or chariots, but in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. Once again, verse 7, it shows us that though Hosea preached in the northern kingdom, there were implications for the south. The southern kingdom should remember the words of Psalm 33, verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Only the Lord can save. And we, as new covenant believers, must remember this too. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 reminds us that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. One of the most difficult battles in Christian ministry is the battle to believe that God sovereignly saves through His appointed means. 
preaching of His Word, through prayer, through the ordinances. It is what we all must struggle to believe and pursue and live in light of each and every day in our own personal evangelism. We must believe that in our home or in the office or in the neighborhood. And so we give ourselves to sharing God's Word and to praying for the lost and pleading with them to be found in Christ. The name, Lo Ruchama, or No Mercy, ought to be a challenge to us too. Like the northern kingdom of Israel, have there been times, or are there times now, when we have presumed upon God's mercy? Are there times when we sin because uh, God's merciful? If you have apprehended the mercy of God, then you will be careful not to abuse His mercy. Thomas Watson once said, quote, The mercies of God make a sinner proud, but a saint humble. From scattering to abandoning His mercy, we move to what is perhaps the most gut-wrenching name in this passage. Lo Ami, or not my people. Now the announcement of this name, it's, it's simply devastating. It's as if the narrative is taking a step down with each name of a child. And here we've hit rock bottom. The name is almost soul-crushing. It's almost soul-crushing because in a certain sense, the whole point, the whole telos, the whole goal of God's covenant relationship with Israel was that they would be His people and He would be their God. When Moses approached the people of Israel to explain why they should follow Him out of Egypt, he was supposed to say this on God's behalf in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Later in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, we read Yahweh saying this to his people. And I will walk among you and will be your God. And you shall be my people. Why this name? Why not my people? We're told halfway through verse 9 with that one little word, for. Do you see it there? In truth, Israel had abandoned Yahweh. In her own heart, Israel had already decided that she did not want to belong to Yahweh, to be His people. By going after other gods, by worshiping at the Baals and the Asherah poles, by seeking satisfaction in them, and by looking to the surrounding nations for safety and security, the people of Israel had abandoned Yahweh as their God, as their covenant husband. They were no longer satisfied in Him alone. They abandoned Yahweh as their heavenly Father. They no longer looked to Him to protect them from the slings and arrows of enemies. They were looking to other nations. And while we must state the sober reality of what is being said here, we must also be careful not to overstate the case. For in just a few verses, there's a promise of reversal. As with the name, no mercy, so with not my people. Yahweh, He is withholding the blessings of the protections of the covenant that Sinai proclaimed. God's judgment would come down on Israel. They would be overrun by Assyria. But that would not be the end of the story. No, a surprising reversal is announced in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, moving through chapter 2, verse 1. Hosea is certainly a prophet who confronts God's people with their covenant violations. And I'm sorry, we're going to have to face more of them as we work our way through the book. But he is also a prophet who offers a word of comfort and consolation to his people. So let's turn and consider our third and final point, Hosea's comfort and consolation. Let's read Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 1. Hosea writes, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. I hope you see the beauty and the bliss and the blessing of these words. Punishment is coming. But God's promises, His passion for His people will prevail. They've been unfaithful, but the faithful God shall redeem His people. Do you see all those shalls in those verses? Though God's people will be scattered, they shall be regathered. Though God's people will face judgment, they shall also receive mercy. 
those God's people have stopped walking with him, he shall once again walk with them and be their God. What we're seeing in these verses is that punishment, and this is important to get, punishment actually paves the way for mercy. Punishment paves the way for mercy. That's why some Christians will describe the story of Hosea as God's salvation through judgment. The words of verse 10 there, they echo the words of promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, and 22. And in those scripture passages, Yahweh promised Abraham that his offspring would be numerous. And here we're seeing that God will not let these good promises fail. No, in that very place was said to them, you are not my people. In that place where it said, and it's over, the Lord will come and issue a word of love and grace and mercy and claim them as his children. Aren't these just sweet words of comfort? And this is where Hosea, he begins to work through the names of his children. They're almost like his thematic outline for preaching from this point forward. Hosea, he starts with a middle child, probably because of the importance of the Abrahamic promises in redemptive history. Abraham would have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand and the sea, but he would also have a particular offspring who would be a blessing to the nations. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And we know this offspring as Jesus. And notice that in connection with the name of his firstborn son, Hosea, he starts talking about a head who will lead God's people. Remember that the name Jezreel means scattered or sown. Well, here in verse 11, we not only have a regathering of the northern kingdom, but we have a reunification of the northern and southern kingdoms. This is what Hosea is saying. In a time in which the kingdoms are divided, they're antagonistic to one another. He's saying there is a head who is going to come who's going to reunite you together. Just as when David united the tribes under his leadership in 2 Samuel chapter 5. A new David-like figure will shepherd the people of God, leading them as one. And this figure, he will be a king. That's what that language of headship is pointing at, that he will be a king. This king will lead his people and they will follow. They shall go up from the land and they will go out and scatter the good news of their restored and reunited kingdom under the name and reign of their great king. What was it that Jesus said to us in Matthew 28. What did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He said, I am the head and now go. Follow me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Who will follow me? And baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, what was formerly said of them, no mercy and not my people shall be reversed and transformed. They shall be the people of God, for they have received mercy. And this is often what happens in this, with names in the scriptures, right? When people are transformed, they're given a, a new name. When God changes the name of a person, it denotes a transformation. And that's precisely what's taken place. It's what happened in your baptism. You were baptized into what? The name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And you bear the name of the living and risen Christ. You're a new creature who lives and follows Him. But read verse 1 of chapter 2 closely. Puzzle over this verse. Verse 1, Say to your brothers, You are my people. And to your sisters, You have received mercy. Well, who is supposed to say this? Well, Hosea is certainly saying, because it's his, his prophecy, his preaching and teaching. But what's actually happening is that the people of God are to say this to one another. That's the implication from the, the Hebrew text. So, so when did this happen? When did God's people start saying this to one another? When did God's people start saying, you are my people and you have received mercy? Well, there's a, a small sense in which these promises, these great hopes are, are answered after the exile in the return to the land. In that event, the two former nations are, are forged into one. But the final fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy must be looking to return uh, to something larger, really. This day is going to include the numerical explosion of God's people, a union under one head, and a revival of covenant faithfulness unto God. 
This feels like a new era. Perhaps we could even say a new covenant era with a new covenant head who brings all of the hopes of the Old Testament to their glorious fulfillment and goal. Is not the church of the living God seemingly made up of an innumerable people who are called God's children? Well, Paul seems to think so. Looking at the church of both Jews and Gentiles in Romans chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, listen to what Paul says. He says, Even us of whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, now he quotes our text, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, You are not my people, they, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now do you hear what Paul is doing with the text of Hosea? The divinely inspired apostle is quoting Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, and he is applying it to Gentiles. He views Gentiles as grafted into the Israel of God. Reunification is not just for the northern and southern kingdoms, but also of Jews and Gentiles. And we know from Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 that those who have faith like Abraham are children of Abraham and therefore children of the living God. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. But Paul, he's not the only one who had this crazy idea that Hosea's prophecy would not only include Jews but also Gentiles. Writing to Jews and Gentiles scattered, or perhaps we could say Jezreeled, across Asia Minor, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who are those who may be called children of the living God? All those who come to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in and as a church, in our corporate worship service, do we not say to one another, you are God's people. You have received mercy. When we receive a brother or sister of Christ into the membership of the church, we're saying, you are God's people. In baptism, we receive them in baptism. We're saying, you are God's people. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're proclaiming the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection, saying to one another, you have received mercy because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say to you that today you can receive God's mercy and be one of God's people. The truth is, is that you and I, we've all sinned. We've failed to love God and do what He commands. We've sinned and we deserve to be eternally separated from God. We deserve to be scattered and sent away and suffer without mercy for all eternity. We deserve to be forsaken, condemned, and punished by the God who is holy, righteous, and good. You deserve to be scattered. But you're not the only one. You're not unique. You see, you and everyone here this morning, we're a whole lot like the people of Israel, the ancient people of Israel. We're a whole lot like Adam and Eve, the ones who first sinned against God. We've all sinned against God. We're all idolaters at heart. We've gone after money for security. We've gone after people who are not our spouses for satisfaction. We've gone after individuals and institutions for our safety. We've all looked to people, places, and prosperity for safety, security, and satisfaction everywhere else but God. We've all looked to everyone and everything else but God, the only person who can save us, the only one in whom we're really truly safe, the only one who makes us eternally secure. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we deserve to face the condemnation that Hosea talks about. But God, He has spoken a word of comfort and consolation in Jesus Christ. He has said to us, come and be gathered under the one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Be gathered to Jesus. Become a child of the living God. Become one of God's people. In Jesus, receive mercy. How? How do we become children of the living God and receive mercy through Jesus? Well, we're told in the opening of John's Gospel. 
We're told that all who did receive Jesus, to all who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of the living God. John chapter 1, verse 12. What a wonder it is to be made by God. But what a glory it is to be saved by God. To be adopted into His family as His children. We become sons and daughters of God through Jesus, believing that He lived the life that we have not lived. You know, Adam failed to obey God's commands. Israel failed to obey God's commands. But Jesus perfectly obeyed God's commands. We believe that He lived that life of perfect righteousness for us. We become sons and daughters of God, believing that Jesus not only lived for us, but that He died bearing the punishment for our sins. He was exiled out of the land of the living, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, for us and for our salvation. He died and He was buried in a tomb. We believe that He died bearing the punishment for our sins. And we believe that on the third day, God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, vindicating Him and making Him, establishing Him as head over God's people, the one who even now reigns on the throne in heaven. So friend, turn from your sin and place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the comfort and consolation of Hosea. It's the comfort and consolation of the whole Bible that we deserved, we who deserve to be cast off, are gathered in, that we're shown mercy, and we're called God's children. And this is where I want us to conclude. We began this morning by considering the question, are, are we really willing to let God the Father use our lives in any way He might choose? What if He called us to obey Him like Hosea? What if He chose to discipline us in His love, like Israel? Then maybe, just maybe, He would be showing us that we belong to Him as His children. For He disciplines and chastises a son whom He loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. He is not in His discipline. He is not driving us away, but drawing us near, calling us to trust Him and follow Him. He is a faithful God. May we be His faithful people.